All right, what's up, y'all? Welcome back to the pod. Um, today we got uh, a couple all-time player debates and the award show. So I don't know. I think I'm gonna start out with the award show just because it's gonna be quick and I'm gonna be able to get that out of the way. Um, because I feel like I'm gonna start rambling with the player debates, which is kind of what this podcast is, and I kind of that's why I like doing it because it's just me rambling. But just really quickly running over some headlines about how all of a sudden, you know, AD started playing well. Now LeBron can come back. So hopefully the Lakers will be able to get into the swing of things before the playoffs start. Brody's one triple-double. So after the next game, you know, Russell Westbrook is one game away from um, surpassing Oscar Robertson. There we go. For all-time um, <clears throat> triple-double list. Um, let's see. Anything else? Anything else? Nothing huge. Yeah, nothing huge. Steph went off for damn near 50. Made another, you know... Another 10 three-pointers in a game. But if I kind of seem to straw right now or I kind of seem out of it, it's because I am about 20 minutes ago, 20, 30 minutes ago, we got the news that Jalen Brown will be out for the rest of the season, including the postseason. Um, Torn ligament in his wrist... And this really dashes any hopes. Um, I, I was talking about it in the group chat with the guys, and one of my and fries said, you know, now the Celtics will get the first round exit that you've always wanted, Ryan. And it's not like, like, at the end of the day, I am a Celtics fan. And it would be fucking awesome to see them upset the, you know, Sixers in the first round or whatever and go on and, and end up in the Eastern Conference Finals again and have a seven-game slugfest with the Nets. That would be awesome. But I think what is best for our franchise, there's a difference there, right? What I want for my team and what's best for my team is two very different things. I want my team to win a championship. But what is best for our team is to get smacked out of the first round. And Fry said that 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 now the Celtics are a first-round exit and that I'm going to get what I wanted. And he's right. But I also said to him, I was like, but now you know, Celtics fans are going to pull the card of, well, if we had Jalen, if we go to six against the Bucks, or if we go to six against... The Sixers, I can 150% guarantee that my friend Dominic will be in the party saying, if we had Jalen, we would have won that series. I mean, come on, we went to six games without Jalen. Jalen wins us at least one game, and then game seven, anything can happen. I can hear Dominic saying that in my ears right now, and I can hear myself getting angry about it. I can feel myself getting angry about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can hear Celtic fans on Twitter being like, imagine if we had Jalen Brown. So even if we are a first-round exit, Celtics fans are going to be like, well, we didn't have Jalen Brown, and that pisses me off. But regardless, you know, get well, Jalen. He was killing the game this year, and hopefully he'll come back next year just as good. Maybe if we can do better in free agency, we'll have a more competent team for him to come back to. We'll see. We will see. But regardless, let's just hop right into the award show because this is probably going to be a bit of a longer episode. Just because I'm going to have to discuss two player rivalries, and not rivalries, but two all-time discussions that have been kind of ongoing within my friend group for a little bit now. One of them more recent than the other. Um, But let's start off with the award show. Let's start off with the most boring one, which actually we'll start off with the most like slanted ones that have literal no debate to them. That there is no reason for anybody to be talking about it. And that's the first one that's going to be most approved player. It's easily Julius Randle. Jalen Brown was early season consideration for me. He was my runaway, but 
if you not putting Julius Randle in most approved player conversation or not having him win most approved player, you're just a hater. You're literally just a hater at the end of the day. Um, I'm not a huge Knicks fan, but I think that Julius Randle is easily the most approved player this year, and I think that he has just shown he's shown growth in ways that I didn't expect him to show. Right, I've said this before on the podcast, but we we saw this side of Julius Randle when he was in New Orleans when AD went out. He was averaging like twenty eight eight and eight, not twenty eight. He was averaging like twenty eight and eight. But for him to do it at such a high volume, for him to do it consistently for a whole season, for him to do it on better efficiency than he was doing in New Orleans, and for him to be an a good defender this year, I mean, come on. Julius Randle made 13 all NBA for me for a reason. The Knicks don't have Julius Randle. They are a bottom feeder this year, and I fully guarantee that. That man is the engine of that team. So Julius Randle's easily most improved. Next most slanted award, in my opinion, is the MVP. That's going to be um, Nikola Jokic for me. It feels like he's kind of just winning this award by default. He wasn't the front runner for the whole season. He wasn't the front runner for most of the season, in my opinion, you know? But once Embiid started to miss significant time, LeBron went down. It was like, okay, Jokic is kind of next guy up. You know, if Curry's team was if Curry's team was a six seed, I'd probably give it to Steph Curry. If Curry's team was not in the in the play in, I would consider him way more. But Jokic has just been too good, too consistent this season um, for them for him to not get the award. Again, it feels it feels just a little bit weird. It feels like he's winning it by default, kind of to an extent. And that feels wrong because it already seems like I'm taking away from his MVP before it's even been given to him. But I think I think this is an MVP we'll look back on in five years and you know question it a little bit. We'll question it. He's deserving of it, like Russell Westbrook was deserving of his MVP. But we'll look back on it and question it a little bit and be like, well, the playing field was very slanted that year because two of the top five candidates, you know, were injured for a good amount of the season and this, that, the other thing. But you know, we'll see, man. Um, next up, I think defensive player of the year is it's kind of it's just Ben Simmons. Like I don't know, I, I don't really care enough to look into advanced stats on defense. I do ooh, I actually have to talk about Marcus Smart for a minute. I have to talk about Marcus Smart. Hold on. Cause I was doing Marcus Smart research today in um Paula's class. Regardless. Um, defense player of the year is Ben Simmons. It's another one of those awards that's like, I've been hearing Ben Simmons be called defense player of the year all year, so he's just getting my vote. Like, I have a vote. So, yeah. Next up is going to be, um, sixth man of the year. And for me, there's been a lot of debate lately because Derrick Rose has been balling the fuck out. And Jordan Clarkson has gone cold recently. I still have Clarkson as my sixth man of the year, regardless. Um, I compared this sixth man of the year race to the rookie of the year race a couple years ago when it was Luka and Trey Young, where Trey Young started out pretty rough. He wasn't doing amazing in that end of the season. He was playing like an all-star, but Luka was pretty consistently good. Luka actually started to falter a little bit when Trey got really hot. So Trey got a lot of um, attention, but... Overall, it was mostly Luca for the whole season, and I'm, I'm giving it to Clarkson. You know, it's not about how you finish; it's about how you play the entire season. I understand Derrick Rose has been hooping, averaging like twenty four in the last like ten games or something crazy like that. But Clarkson has been doing this all season. Man. Jordan Clarkson has been dogging all season, and I'm gonna give him the award for playing better for three quarters of the season and sucking for the last quarter of the season than Derrick Rose for playing good the last quarter of the season. That one, I don't think that one's too much of a debate, but I feel like I might get a little backlash for that one. Just because recently Jordan Clarkson has been hot at, like, terrible, bro, terrible. 
Um, rookie of the year. Rookie of the year. This is going to be one of the most interesting ones because Tyrese Halliburton is the clear number three. He has been consistently great. Get well soon to him because he uh, just went out with an injury. But he has been the one that's been consistently great throughout the entire season. Um, because LaMelo, you know, when he was first coming off the bench, he wasn't amazing and he's missed time. Like Tyrese, Tyrese has been healthy and Tyrese has been consistent. Right? And the knock on LaMelo is that he hasn't been healthy. And the knock on Anthony Edwards is that he wasn't consistent. Right? But Reese, to an extent, you know, he, he if you look at the advanced stats, he does contribute a lot to the Kings' success. But the Kings overall are really trash. I've talked about that before. But he's the clear-cut number three. For me, Anthony Edwards is two and LaMelo's one. I'm giving the rookie of the year to LaMelo because he was the best rookie this year. When, once he started, once he started, he was averaging like 18, 8, and 8 on... I think it was 40, 38, like 75 splits, somewhere around there. 45, 38, 75 splits, somewhere around there. But overall, just playing, exceeding my personal expectations. I think I tweeted out, I could probably find out if I wanted to. And trust me, if when LaMelo Ball wins Rookie of the Year, I'm going to quote tweet it and put his actual, like, I tweeted out early season, I think actually at the draft, if he averages 14, 6, and 6 on 40, 35, 72 splits or something like that, I will be extremely happy. And he's exceeded those expectations. Not to mention how fun it is to watch him play. Yeah, Hornets announcers are corny as hell, but it's really fun to watch LaMelo play. Um, But Anthony Edwards has been just making a really good push lately. He's making it a conversation, which you can only credit him for. I stand fully corrected. I said that Andrew, w- or Andrew Wiggins. I said that Anthony Edwards had bust written all over him. I said that Anthony Edwards had Andrew Wiggins written all over him. And that's just, nah, nah, bro. Wiggins had a great rookie year, but nah, man. Anthony Edwards is that dude. Anthony Edwards is that dude. Anthony Edwards might fuck around and, and be the second best player on this Timberwolves team at the end of next season. I think he... Is Anthony Edwards the second best player on his team? Maybe. Maybe. I think it's a debate. This D-Lo slander needs to chill, though. I I need to chill. I need to chill. I need to chill. But for rookie of the year, I do have LaMelo. Now, this is going to be the most highly contested one. I debated this in the party with my friends. This is coach of the year. I'm giving it to Quinn Snyder, personally, right? And they were all talking about how, oh, it's fucking... Oh my god, why am I... Monty Williams, sorry. So sorry, Suns fans. But I... And I, let me state my case for why Quinn Snyder deserves his own Monty Williams. Now, it's 1A and 1B, in my opinion. If Monty Williams gets it, I'm not going to go on Twitter and start, you know, slandering the Suns and Monty Williams. But... Monty Williams got roster improvement. Quinn Snyder did not. Quinn Snyder took the exact same roster from last year with Mike Conley playing better and took them from, uh, I think they were the five seed. They were either the five or the six seed and made them the one seed in the Western Conference. There are some statistics that this Jazz team has that only NBA championship teams have had. And now you may say that, oh, the, the Jazz are only so good because all of their players are shooting career highs. Well, first of all, you have to attribute that to Quinn Snyder completely rearranging the offensive system. This is not the same Jazz team that I saw the past three years. You know? Because I tweeted out when Rudy Gobert signed his max, you know, the Jazz just signed up to be perennial first-round exits because I didn't know Quinn Snyder was doing this. But to go back to the point of everyone shooting a career high, if you look at the Jazz players that are, that are like, outstanding shooting this year, only one or two players, I think it's Mike Conley and... Royce O'Neal are the only ones shooting, like, abnormally good from three. Donovan Mitchell is shooting better, but not much better. 
Same with Bogdanovich, same with Joe Ingles, same with Jordan Clarkson. All of these, all of the guys I just named are good three-point shooters that are just shooting a little bit better because of the offensive system that they're running. It's getting them more open shots. It just logically makes sense, right? When you run Steph off ball and he gets a screen and he gets an open three, that's better than him taking a step back like Luka. You know what I'm saying? That's why Luka and Steph shoot drastically differently from three. Obviously, one's a better shooter, but it's also because of the, the degree of difficulty of the looks that they're getting. The Jazz and the way that Quinn Snyder changed the offensive system, they're getting a much better, they're getting much higher quality looks from three, and that's why it's falling, All right? And now, granted, Monty Williams did take a team that two years ago was a complete bottom feeder, literally had the first pick like three or four years ago, and made them the second seed in the West. At one point, they were the first seed. But my main argument here, because Dominic brought up how Mike Conley has played so much better, which is a really good point to make. My main argument here is that Mike Conley's impact on the team is not even close to Chris Paul's impact on the Suns, right? If Chris Paul isn't here and you still have Ricky Rubio as the Suns point guard, they're a seventh seed. They're a sixth seed in the West. Without without a doubt in my mind. Chris Paul is lit. Like I, I, I broke it up in the party. I said, the Suns success is 60% Chris Paul, 30% Monty Williams, and 10% players outplaying their expectations. Mikel Bridges is playing better than I thought he was going to be. Cam Johnson is playing better than I thought he was going to be. DeAndre Ayton is underperforming in my opinion. He's picked it up lately, but overall for the season, he's underperforming. Regardless, I'm trying to say that the, the culture that CP3 bought, brought, the leadership and the, the end game closing shit out that CP3 has brought to this Suns team is the main reason why they are the two seed right now, right? If you take Mike Conley off of this Jazz team, the way that they're running it this year, and you moved Donovan Mitchell to the two uh, to the point guard, the way that they've been running this offensive system this year, I think they're the three three seed, four seed. I don't think that they drop as much as the Suns do. I think Quinn Snyder's impact is far greater than Monty Williams' impact because Chris Paul's impact is so much greater than Mike Conley's impact, right? Like if we're talking on a 100-point scale of impacts, Chris Paul's is 60-40 to me. And Quinn Snyder's, or Mike Conley versus Quinn Snyder is like 20-80. I think Quinn Snyder had a far greater impact on his team becoming successful than Monty Williams had an impact. Now, granted, Monty Williams did come in. He did, you know, engage in a culture shift in Phoenix from a losing culture to a, you know, grit and grind, nobody wants it more than us kind of mentality. But I think that, I just think that, that Quinn Snyder deserves more recognition because he, you know, he did this without roster change, right? Right. At the end of the day, Monty Williams got an all-star in Chris Paul, and he also got Jay Crowder, a guy who really, really helped the Heat make it to the finals, man. That kid was not missing in the playoffs. But regardless, it's 1A and 1B to me. If you have Monty Williams winning coach of the year, I'm not going to argue with you on Twitter about it, but I think that, that Quinn Snyder deserves it way more. And, and it's also because at the beginning of the season, some people, I was like, the the, the, the Suns will be a, you know, a, a top five seed in the West. They will be a competent, competitive team. No one expected them to be a two seed, but I think there were higher expectations for the Suns than there were for the Jazz at the beginning of the season. That's another reason, too, right there. But that is the award show. To go over it again, defensive player of the year is Ben Simmons. Six men of the year is Jordan Clarkson. Coach of the year is Quinn Snyder. MVP is Nikola Jokic, Rookie of the Year is LaMelo Ball, and Most Improved Player is Julius Randle. Executive of the Year, I don't care. I don't care. It would definitely be the Nets executive because they pulled off a James Harden deal. 
Regardless, let's talk about Marcus Smart for a little bit. I'll try to make this one quick because Dominic loves to slander Marcus Smart. It's one of his favorite pastimes. He loves to do it. Now, watching Marcus Smart this year, he's played, in my opinion, as about normally as he has played in other years, right? Where he is just inconsistent. He just, there are some games where you love watching Marcus Smart play. There are some games where you hate watching Marcus Smart play. That's how he is as a player. And we were looking at his stats last night on Basketball Reference, and I was doing further research into advanced statistics and advanced analytics today during um, personal finance. I was looking at his on-off numbers. I was looking at how the Celtics perform relative to how he performs. And at the end of the day, when Marcus Smart is on the floor, we are better defensively and we are better offensively. I understand what Dominic means in the sense of like he does not he rarely has a game where he is flawless in terms of making like a bonehead ass play that you look at and go how the hell is he in the NBA but at the end of the day Marcus Smart is the third most valuable player to this team and I fully believe that I will die on that hill if there there are if we are in an expansion draft and we can only protect three players I am protecting Marcus Smart as my third player you know what I'm saying? I said at the trade deadline, I was saying, you know, I think it was just before I started the podcast. Maybe I said this on an earlier podcast, but there are three untouchable players on the Celtics, and one of them is Marcus Smart, and the other two are our two young wings, right? Like, because Marcus Smart is the heart and soul of this team. You don't just go out and replace Marcus Smart, right? It, this isn't a great comparison, but when we thought we were replacing Kyrie Irving with Kemba Walker, that was a fat, like, looking back on it, that's so rude to Kyrie Irving. You don't replace Kyrie Irving. You don't replace that kind of shot creation, that kind of shot making, and that kind of late game clutch. Kemba Walker isn't even a dollar version of Kyrie Irving. Kemba Walker is the fucking five cent version of Kyrie Irving. You don't replace Marcus Smart. There are like five guys in the league that bring to the table what Marcus Smart brings to the table right? Because Marcus Smart, on a team with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who are not emotional leaders, they are not guys that are going to get in your face and tell you what the fuck you need to do. Marcus Smart is that guy. Marcus Smart, I he may shoot 40% from the field. He may shoot 36% from three. He may shoot, you know, 48% effective field goal percentage. I don't care. His efficiency is lacking, but the intangibles he brings to the team are just on. You cannot match them. You can't match them. I don't know if there's a guy in the league that brings what he brings better than him. Maybe Draymond Green. Draymond Green's the first guy that comes to mind, but I'm not trading for Draymond Green. You know, like to sit here and slander Marcus Smart is one thing because he deserves criticism sometimes, but it's a part of the package at the end of the day. You know, no player is perfect and Marcus Smart is far from perfect. But to sit here and act like he is a negative for the Boston Celtics is just casual as hell. Dominic, I know Dominic watches every single game, damn near every single game. He watches more Celtics teams than I do. I don't know, man. But I just looked at the advanced statistics because if you look at his just numbers from this year, he's doing normal Marcus Smart shit. He's not shooting as well, but he's doing normal Marcus Smart shit. Regardless, 20 minutes in and we're finally getting to the player debates. All right, I'm going to break up these player debates into two separate categories. How the individual player was in their prime, specifically how great they were, and then at what point were their teams most successful, how big of a role did they play, and whether or not, like, I'm going to, you know, pick apart these things. So first, we're going to do Kidd versus Nash, because I think this is much closer than Garnett versus Barkley. And now, before I even start this debate, Will's the one that I'm really debating here. Um, 
him and I are contradicting ourselves, right? I'm picking Steve Nash. He's picking Jason Kidd. He's picking Jason Kidd mainly because Jason Kidd was a miles better defender. And Jason Kidd, if you ask players at the time that played with him or played against him, he was that guy. That's why he's picking Jason Kidd over Steve Nash, which is a perfectly fine argument. I'm picking Kevin Garnett over Charles Barkley for the exact same reasons. Kevin Garnett was a better defender, a miles better defender. And if you ask people about his MVP season, it's one of the most dominant in NBA history. But I don't have that same logic for Jason Kidd, and he doesn't have that same logic for Kevin Garnett, right? I don't know if that makes sense, but like we're contradicting each other. We're using each other's reasoning against each other just with two different player debates. Regardless, we'll get into it. So first off with Jason Kidd. Um, if basketball reference would load, I could read off his accolades. There we go. 10-time All-Star, um, 9-time All-Defense, 6-time six 6-time six All-NBA, 5-time Assist Champion, and then 94-95, I'm pretty sure he was co-rookie of the year? I could be tripping on that, but if not, then he won rookie of the year. Regardless, he's a Hall of Famer at the end of the day. His career splits are 12.6 points, 6.3 rebounds, 8.7 assists on 40, 35, 78 splits with an effective field goal percentage of 46, a PER of 17.9, and 138.6 win shares. Compare that to Steve Nash. Steve Nash is an 8-time All-Star, 7-time All-NBA, 2-time MVP. Did I read off? They're both 5-time assist champions, so that's passable but Steve Nash averaged 14 points three rebounds and eight and a half assists on 49 42.8 90 splits with an effective field goal percentage of 55.6 PER of 20 and a win shares of 129.7 directly comparing them Jason Kidd has more all-stars Steve Nash has more all-NBAs um Steve Nash never made an all-defensive team Jason Kidd made nine of them Jason Kidd's a champion but Steve Nash is a two-time MVP um Jason Kidd, Steve Nash averaged more points. Jason Kidd averaged more rebounds and assists, but Steve Nash was just insanely more efficient. Steve Nash has the third highest three-point percentage all time for a career and like his top 10 in free throw, I know that, and just was extremely more efficient. Um, Steve Nash has a higher PER, but Jason Kidd has more win shares. Granted, Jason Kidd played... How many more? I think he only played one more season than Nash. Yeah, he only played one more season than Nash, but Nash's like last two seasons with the Lakers, he was garbage. Like he was complete ass. Whereas Jason Kidd aged out, I think more gracefully in terms of being able to contribute, right? Like if you look at these statistics, Steve Nash looks like the better player at the end of his career, but in terms of contributing to like good basketball, I think Jason Kidd, because Jason Kidd was a good defender, he was able to contribute, right? Um, so, yeah, but let's get into the debate. So, first thing, to compare these players when their teams are at their best. Steve Nash is a hard one to do because when he was in Dallas with Dirk, they had a couple championship caliber teams, and when he was in Phoenix with... um. Amari Stoudemire, D'Antoni, seven seconds or less. They had a couple championship um, quality teams. Same thing for Jason Kidd, though. He led a team to the finals like, three straight years, if I'm not mistaken. And then he ended up winning a championship in Dallas. Now, let's start out with Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd's championship in Dallas is probably the most important championship in NBA. And one of the most important championships in NBA history. At least the most important championship in, since the uh, turn of the century. Excuse me. Sorry. Jason Kidd had a huge uh, role in that championship. 
Yeah, Dirk played really well. So did Deshaun Stevenson. So did Jason Terry. You know, Jason Kidd had a huge role in guarding LeBron in those finals. And the way that him and Tyson Chandler were able to manipulate the Heat offense to force LeBron into bad shots, to force LeBron into being passive, is one of the reasons, is one of the main reasons why the, you know, Mavericks were able to win that. Now, granted, Rick Carlisle deserves a lot of credit for that. And like I said, Tyson Chandler deserves a huge amount of credit. I would highly recommend um, Dom 2K dropped a video just basically breaking down the 2011 finals um, from the defensive standpoint of Tyson Chandler and why Tyson Chandler was so important to that Mavericks squad and why they were stupid as hell for letting him go to the Nixon free agency. But regardless, Jason Kidd's championship, although it wasn't like at a time... When he was really all that, yeah. Although it wasn't at a time where he was, you know, really killing the game, killing the game. He still had a huge role in that. Now, to talk about Jason Kidd's era on the Nets. It's very difficult because that was the weakest time the Eastern Conference has ever existed. The weakest time the Eastern Conference has ever existed. Right? You had a power vacuum from the Bulls that spat out, you know, the Pacers, the the Sixers... The fucking, um, I mean, the Raptors were good at the time. They made it, they were close to a couple finals, but even like the Pistons were the first team to come around and the Pistons were the team that kind of ended the, the, um, Nets era, right? The Pistons came in in 04 and were like, yeah, the Nets are done here. Nets are done here. But what I'm saying is the Nets were the product of a power vacuum in the Eastern conference, Right, MJ retired, Reggie Miller and the Pacers fade out, and someone needs to make the finals. And it was kind of those Brooklyn or those New Jersey Nets teams. Right? Granted, it was Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin, and Kerry Kittles, but those teams were really not that good. Those Eastern Conference years were bad. They were bad. They were not good years to be a part of the Eastern Conference. It was it was, like I said, one of the weakest times to ever be in the East. And those Jason Kidd's Nets teams, if they're playing the teams that Steve Nash was playing in the playoffs, they're first-round exits. They're second-round exits. They're getting their ass walloped in six games. You know what I'm saying? So, yes, Jason Kidd did make the finals as the lead man on his team, but he made it. It's a, he was a product of his environment at the end of the day. He made the finals because someone had to make the finals, you know, because there was a power vacuum. Now, Steve Nash's teams, right, he never won a championship, which is probably his biggest knock as a player. There was one season, I don't remember what season it was in Dallas, man. It, it might have been like 02 or 03. They were that close. They were so close to winning a championship. Dirk gets, Dirk gets injured. Um, Sorry if you guys heard a weird interruption in the back. That was my dad yelling at me. Regardless, like I said, Dirk got injured. They ended up losing the Spurs, right? This, like... The same team that prevented Jason Kidd from winning a championship prevented Steve Nash from winning a championship. The Spurs. It was the Spurs and the Lakers that were just preventing Steve Nash from really winning a championship in his prime. Right? At least with the, at least with the Mavericks. And even to an extent with the Suns. Regardless, Dirk Nowitzki goes down. I think it was in game five. Steve Nash comes out and plays a phenomenal game six. But, you know, it kind of, they, they collapse a little bit in the fourth quarter and Steve Kerr gets really hot and the Spurs secure it in six and go on to win the finals. Now, the uh, Mark Cuban ends up letting Steve Nash walk in free agency. He goes to Phoenix. And in terms of those Suns teams that were really good, 
Steve Nash was the engine of them. They had Amari Stoudemire, Rim Smasher, Sean Marion. Um, Jim Jackson was there for a couple of years. Joe Johnson was there for a couple of years. Boris Dia was there. Um, Leandro Barbosa. There were certain guys there that just fit perfectly, right? It was Amari Stoudemire, a bunch of shooters, and Steve Nash running the show. Seven seconds or less. And these teams also lost because of the Spurs, in one way or the other, the Spurs really incorporate or um, had a hand in the defeating of the Nash Suns, and there were I forget which year, man. I forget which year. There was one year where the the Suns are straight up disappointed, and they just didn't do as well as people thought they would. But I'll get to this more with um, Nash's MVPs when I talk about them individually within their primes. Um, Steve Nash. In I think it was the 06 season, his second, his latter, his, yeah, his latter MVP season. Amari Stoudemire was injured the entire season and the entire postseason, and I'm pretty sure that Suns team either went, they either went seven in the Western Conference semis or they made the Western Conference finals without their second best player, just without him, just because Steve Nash was like that. I think Steve Nash's importance to those Suns teams is highly underrated. If they don't have Steve Nash, they don't have a system, and if they don't have the San Antonio Spurs. They don't have to do. They don't have to worry about getting to the finals. You know, if you put those Phoenix Suns teams in the Eastern Conference that Jason Kidd had to go through, Steve Nash makes three straight finals. Does he win them? Probably not, because those teams that beat Jason Kidd also beat Steve Nash. But he would also have three finals on his resume, right? I just think that it's it's to say that that Jason Kidd's individual success outshines Steve Nash's individual success kind of removes context from the situation completely and it just looks at it bare bones without the you know without fleshing out the full story of it but to move on to them as as real um individual players in their primes Jason Kidd in his prime was really that dude really that dude i think his so his best season would be just looking at the stats uh, give me Give me 2003 um, Jason Kidd. He was 29 years old. I think this was the last year that they made the finals. He played 80 games. He averaged 18.7 points, 8.9 assists, which led the league. Um, Here, shooting. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. Shooting 41% from the field, 34% from three, uh, 46% effective field goal percentage, 84% from the line. He also averaged six rebounds, so he was averaging 18.7, 6, and 9 a game with two steals and only four turnovers a game. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So that would probably be Steve Nash, uh, not Steve Nash, sorry, Jason Kidd's best statistical season. Now, I'm going to give my personal bias out here. I know more about Steve Nash. I care more about Steve Nash's career. I've no- learned more about Steve Nash's career. Uh, Secret Base has a great series called Untitled that goes to different players throughout sports who never won a championship like randy moss barry bonds um john stockton or carl malone steve nash is one that i've watched several times so i know a lot more about steve nash's career and the circumstances of it than i do jason kidd's one thing i do know about jason kidd's career is that it was one of the years in brooklyn i think it was after the 03 season or the 04 season he had a chance to leave in free agency had a chance to walk in free agency and he was about in 20 minutes away from signing with the Spurs, a team that, yeah, it was so it was after the 03 season because the Spurs had just beaten them in the finals. And Kidd was about to sign with the Spurs to be their point guard of the future. And then he got cold feet on the plane and he ended up re-signing with New Jersey. And uh, 
he says, I think he said, he's, he has said later that he regrets it too, that he regretted that decision. But regardless, I do know more about Steve Nash's career. So there's a little bit of bias here, but you know, when, when Jason Kidd was at the top of his game, he was the best point guard in the league. He was, but so was Steve Nash when he was at the top of his game. And now Steve Nash's MVP seasons, um, 05 and 06 were when he was in Phoenix. Um, 05, he averaged 15, 11. He averaged 15, 3, and 11 with uh, only a steal per game, man. Wow. Uh, but 50, 40, ooh, almost 90 season. That's another thing, too, is that Steve Nash was just disgustingly more efficient. I think he had four or five seasons of 50, 40, 90 club. Here, give me a second. Um... 50, 40, 90, 50, 40, 90. Oh, he was so close that season. He was so close that season, too. 50, 40, 90. So he had four seasons of 50, 40, 90. Um, but his MVP use, he averaged 15, 11, and 3. And 18, 10, and 4. Both on not exactly 50-40-90 splits. The second, the second MVP was on 50-40-90 splits, but damn near 50-40-90 splits. So Steve Nash was putting up relatively similar numbers to Jason Kidd in their primes, you know, in terms of assist-to-turnover ratio, in terms of points per game. It's just that Steve Nash was doing it a lot more efficiently. Steve Nash's teams were better. Now, another thing to note, with both of these MVPs is that they are some of the most debatable in NBA history. I'll break it down to you as to why Steve Nash won these. 2004, the Suns win 29 games, right? They have a young core of Amari Stoudemire, Sean Marion, and Joe Johnson, which is a really promising young core. They still have these awful contracts of Penny Hardaway and Stephon Barberry on their roster. They give those contracts to the New York Knicks, who are trying to blast away any sources of... Um, cap space so that they can have money for free agency and eventually get money for LeBron in free agency. And this leads to the Suns having the cap space to sign Steve Nash. The the Suns from 2004 to 2005, in that season alone, they went from 29 wins as the previous season to 62. All they did, all, literally all they did, I swear to God, all they did was sign Steve Nash and make my, Mike D'Antoni the head coach. Seven seconds or less, like, tripled their win total. That's not true. It, like, doubled their win total. You know what I'm saying? That's why he won his first MVP, even though he only averaged fucking 15 points per game or 18 points per game or whatever. No, yeah. He averaged 18 points per game. Sorry. But anyway... Regardless, the season after that, so that's why he won his first MVP. It was, it was, these MVPs are extremely narrative based at the end of the day, right? They don't flash statistically, but they're extremely narrative based at the end of the day. Steve Nash's second MVP was given to him because Amari Stoudemire missed most of the season. He was in there, he was in and out here and there. And this is the reason why they lost in the playoffs too, but Amari Stoudemire missed the end of the season or not the end of the season, most of the season. And this Suns team got really weird. They had Jim Jackson. They had, oh, shit. Tim Thomas. Tim Thomas? Someone Thomas. Oh, my God. I completely forget his name. 
And they had Boris Diaw running center. Six foot seven Boris Diaw running center. And that team still won 60 games and still was one of the best teams in the e- in the West. And that's why he won a back-to-back MVPs because his second best player wasn't there for most of the season and he still led the team to the exact same level of greatness that they were at. That's why Nash won his two MVPs. And at the end of the day, I'm going to value two MVPs and being stuck in an extremely tight and competitive Western Conference over making the finals three straight years in one of the weakest times to be a part of the East. And I understand Jason Kidd is an all-NBA defender, one of the best defending point guards of all time. But I find that Steve Nash's offensive talent and his offensive value to his team, because without Steve Nash, seven seconds doesn't happen. Without Steve Nash, there's no engine to that offense. Those Suns teams don't exist without Steve Nash. But... Jason Kidd's defensive prowess does not close the gap to me in terms of Steve Nash's offensive greatness, his pioneer as a player, his efficiency. Like, Steve Nash is so far above Jason Kidd offensively, in my opinion, and two MVPs really do help your case here, that Jason Kidd's defensive prowess just doesn't close the gap enough for me to call it that. You know, that's why I would have Steve Nash over Jason Kidd. Now, this podcast is damn near, it's going to be an hour probably which is just awesome. But let's talk about Kevin Garnett versus Charles Barkley. I'll give you my, the gist of my argument right now. Kevin Garnett, if we read off accolades, 15-time All-Star, one-time champion, nine-time All-NBA, 12-time defensively, uh, All-Defense, um, one-time Defensive Player of the Year, and one-time MVP. Charles Barkley was... An 11-time All-Star, 11-time All-NBA, and one-time MVP. Actually, Kevin Garnett was four-time rebound champion, and Charles Barkley was only a one-time rebound champion. Okay. Career splits, Garnett averaged 18-10-4 on 50-28-79 splits. Effective field goal percentage of 50%, PER of 23, win shares of 191. Charles Barkley averaged 22, 12, and 4 on a 54, 27, 73 splits. Effective field goal percentage of 55.8, PER of 24.6, and win shares of 177.2. Barkley averaged more points, rebounds, and assists on better effective field goal percentage, better field goal percentage, and he had more he had a better PER, but Garnett had more win shares. Garnett also shot better from three and the free throw line, but who really gives a shit? Um my two main arguments. So let's break down like I did with the Nash um kid one. I'm gonna try and make this one quicker. Team success. Kevin Garnett, really a lack of team success with the Timberwolves. They failed to surround him with great talent. That year he won MVP. They made the Western Conference Finals and got pretty damn close to taking down the Spurs, but at the end of the day, they just weren't able to. Kevin Garnett is was at one point, you know, probably the greatest player of all time to never win a ring. You know? He he his his teams were never really that good. His best supporting cast was at one point it was Stefan Barberry, then Stefan Barberry left. It was Stefan Barbie and Wally Zerbiak, and then it was like Sam Cassell and who else was on that team? Sam Cassell and somebody else that I'm just completely blanking on were on those Kevin Garnett teams. He has another one. Oh no, he doesn't. Yeah. But there's there's a couple things from Secret Base to talk about Kevin Garnett's career. Regardless, 
Kevin Garnett in Minnesota was obviously not surrounded with the talent he needed to be surrounded with. He goes and forms a super team in Boston. He wins defensive player of the year. They win a championship. Kevin Garnett has a pretty damn good argument for finals MVP that year also. Right? Charles Barkley, in terms of team success, he brought his team to the finals. He was very good with those Sixers teams early on in his career. He was very fortunate to be drafted there. Um, but his, what, four seasons in Phoenix, they made the finals once. And overall, they were they were powerhouses, man. But he had, you know, Kevin Johnson. He had, he Charles Barkley had a better supporting cast than Kevin Garnett ever had. So, you know, take it as you will. Take it as you will. Charles Barkley has a secret base as to why he never won a championship, too. But even Charles Barkley did form a super team at one point in his career. He joined the Houston Rockets in 1996-97. So him, Hakeem, and Clyde, they were all old as shit. And also Pippen was on those teams too. I don't know if Clyde was still on the teams when Pippen joined, but they were all old, granted. But those teams were seen as very dangerous at the time because it was three Hall of Famers on the team at the same time. So in terms of individual player success yes Kevin Garnett obviously has the champion or individual team success Kevin Garnett obviously has the championship and Kevin Garnett had a season where he damn near made the finals he was pretty close but Charles Barkley's teams overall were just more successful now let's talk about individual players because Kevin Garnett's one of the greatest defenders of all time his MVP is known as one of the most dominant seasons of all time and uh, he overall is just one of the greatest I'd love to have you on my team, but I hate to play against you guys in NBA history, right? You can look at Kevin Garnett's defensive player of the year. You can look at all his all defensive team selections. You can look at everything, and it still doesn't give the impact of who Kevin Garnett was as a player. He was the emotional leader of teams. He was the guy giving comms out on defense. He was the guy trying to fight the best player on the other team. Kevin Garnett was the last of a dying breed where he would talk shit to you all game. You know, Kevin Garnett in his prime, where's his MVP year? Where is his MVP year? 2003 to 2004. He averaged 24-14-5 along with a steal and a half and two blocks on 49-25, I guess, on 0.5 attempts per game, but 25-79 splits, right? So, 24-14. Charles Barkley's MVP season, which was 1990-1991, he averaged 25-11. and 11. So, pretty close numbers. Pretty close numbers. But, you know, Michael Jordan sat up there on the last dance and was like, Charles Barkley was never a threat to me. Charles Barkley, you know, was never... That MVP should have gone to me. Which, granted, the last dance pisses me off because it was basically just everyone sucking Michael Jordan's dick. But regardless... That didn't help his image, in my opinion, um, in terms of like how I view Charles Barkley as an all-time great. Listen, Kevin Garnett and Charles Barkley are probably... I can't even think. They're, they're back-to-back, though, on my all-time power forwards list, right? They would be 3-4 and four or 4-5 four and five if I'm forgetting someone after Duncan, Nowitzki. I put Malone above both of them, and then Garnett, Barkley. That's how I would have it. But I just think that Garnett's prowess as an intangible player, a player whose impact doesn't show up in the box score, as well as a defensive monster, outweighs the fact that Charles Barkley probably had better team success throughout his career. Because, I mean, Charles Barkley statistically, 
Charles Barkley and Kevin Garnett statistically are not that crazy off from each other. In terms of their primes, in terms of career averages, they're pretty far away from each other, relatively speaking. But overall, that is also because Kevin Garnett, like his numbers are a bit skewed because from when he was 37 until he was, from when he was 37, 38, and 39, he didn't, like, when he was 39, he averaged three points per game right? Really, after Kevin Garnett tore his ACL, he wasn't the same player, you know? And Charles Barkley did have back injuries, which did the same to him. But what I'm basically trying to say here is that it doesn't matter. Looking at these statistics has changed nothing. I still think Kevin Garnett is greater. And I think it's by a pretty wide margin. I don't think it's that close. You know, Charles Barkley was cool in his prime, but those Suns teams only made one finals. It's not like Michael Jordan really, really prevented this guy from winning a championship. Right, the, the powerhouse that was the Spurs and the powerhouse that was the Lakers prevented Kevin Garnett from winning a championship even when Kevin Garnett had no help around him. You know, Charles Barkley disappointed more in his career, I think. Early in his career, those Philly teams were expected to win championships. They just won a ring and then they drafted Charles Barkley and they never won a ring. And Charles Barkley requested a trade and then he went to Phoenix and he never won a ring. And then he went to Houston, where there were there, everywhere that Charles Barkley went, there were championship expectations, and he never fulfilled them. Kevin Garnett at least fulfilled them once, right? You know, because because Michael Jordan does have a huge hand in preventing Charles Barkley from winning a championship, but I don't know, man. I think that Chuck disappointed more than. Kevin Garnett did in his career and Kevin Garnett is just like it's egregious because because like the difference with Nash and Kidd Nash and Kidd to me Nash is like marginally better offensively as a total offensive player not as a score I mean even as a scorer between a scorer and just an offensive engine Nash is miles better than Jason Kidd so Jason Kidd being a better defender closes the gap but not enough for me Kevin Garnett versus Charles Barkley. I think Kevin Garnett is debatably a better offensive player than Charles Barkley was, right? Because there were... Uh, not really, never mind. I was going to say there were seasons where Kevin Garnett was respectable from three. And there were. There were seasons where he shot 30 plus percent from three. You know, he shot 37 one year. He shot 33 one year. He shot 32 one year. But it's not on a ton of attempts. I think that Kevin Garnett and Charles Barkley in terms of offensive trade-off is pretty even. I would put Chuck a little bit higher. But in terms of offensive trade-off, it's not that big. It's not as great as you would think it is. And that's why the defensive impact of Kevin Garnett makes it so much more important, right? It makes it so much different. Kevin Garnett's defensive impact puts him on a pedestal so much higher than Charles Barkley, in my opinion. And that's not really going to change. So to recap this, Steve Nash is better all-time, in my opinion, than Jason Kidd. And Kevin Garnett is better all-time than Charles Barkley. I've presented my case. It probably didn't make much sense because it was just rambling. But my Chromebook is about to die, so I can't be on Basketball Reference much longer. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to rate it five stars, to like it, recommend it, whatever you want to do. Thank you so much for listening. Peace.